This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You're listening to the Breakfasters podcast from the 14th of June to the 17th of June. Highlights this week include we had a lovely talk break uh, talking about kids lying, those big fat porky pies that they tell, and we got to have a chat with documentary filmmaker Nigel Dick, who is also famous for being a music video maker. And Lachlan Carter came in to talk about the Anarchist Design book, all kinds of interesting things about making furniture. And then uh, Caleb Lewis, Caleb Lewis rather, and Ella, Ella Caldwell came in from Red Stitch to talk about their play, The Honey Bees, which is all about colony collapse in the bee world. It was it was. Wonderful. Well, I was trying to think of a bee pun, but that's all right. We're joined by Lachlan Carter. How are you going, Lachlan? Oh, I'm going well, thanks. You've brought in a beautiful object, um, a design book by Chris Schwartz, but not just an ordinary design book, the Anarchist's design book. <laughs> so the Anarchist, I mean, it's quite a hefty tomb. It was something we were talking before. It costs $68. It's like the Stephanie Alexander of the um, woodworkers book world. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's got a uh, little painted around the edges of the pages is a particular treatment to stop it rotting in your shed. It kind it of looks like a ye old Bible, but like an Anarchist's Bible. That, that is even a thing. <laughs> <laughs> it seems a little bit organised yeah. for an, and that's the it thing. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. a four hundred page book uh, for anarchists seems like maybe a bit too much to read and a bit too much order. There's chapters in there. I mean, I, I feel that it's it's he's put a bit too much. Uh, effort so in. it's basically about woodwork, though, making furniture. Yeah, it is. So the I mean, the idea. He's uh, Chris Schwartz to go back a little bit. He's a um, uh, little bit of the godfather of the woodworking world. So he used to be the editor of a um, magazine, Popular Woodworker, in the states for um, a bunch of years. Um, he blogs a lot. Um, he's written a couple of books about basically taking control again on uh, the creation of the things that we use in our lives. So um, his anarchy is sort of the anti-consumerism kind of brand mm. of anarchy where, um, you know, it's a bit of the anti-IKEA, uh, where his idea is that uh, people used to make things. They didn't have to have too many skills or too many tools to do them. Um, and it was all about sort of what you needed and building things that would last rather than uh, something that was going to bust it up in, you know, uh, So is this a, a design manifesto or is it sort of a how-to book or it's a bit both. of both? Yeah, so there's manifesto sort of flows um, throughout and then he's got uh, 12 projects that um, he sets up for people to build and he uses a couple of particular building techniques that are um, uh, sort of traditional building techniques. So he's gone back, he's done a lot of research and gone back, um, you know, lots of images, uh, engravings um, on how people used to build and the tools they used to use and how people we used furniture as well and he sort of looked for details um, and through that he's created these designs and then um, projects uh, that you can sort of pick up to build and there's a lot of um, standard stuff that you would find in uh, any person's house like chairs and tables and then the odd uh, odd project as well. He, he builds a coffin so he's, the 12th oh, project in the book handy. is a coffin. <laughs> is well, it really? They're, I, very, I, well, they're very expensive. We're all going to need one. Yeah. They, they are expensive but you don't have to worry about that, do yeah, you? Oh, you <laughs> that somebody else. That's a spirit. Good point. Good point. He's built, I mean, his whole idea is why Why would I ask my family to buy a coffin? I can build a coffin and he's only 46 so it's hanging on the wall of his house with shelves in it at the moment so it's a bookshelf. Oh, wow. Um, and so, I mean, for me personally, I, I, when I pick up this 
this book. I look for, you don't need to read it cover to cover. You can pick the projects that you want rather than have to go one by one throughout. Totally. And but then, it's, sorry, is it designed for people that might not be very good at woodwork that but want to be? Look, I think it's designed uh, at sort of a midpoint. I mean, there's, there is a bit of a booming industry, um, cottage industry, shed industry, mm-hmm. I think you call it. So, and you know, and I'm one of those people as well. So I've got in our rental house, we've got a, um, a shed out the back. It's like two metres by three metres, one of those Bunnings jobs um, that uh, just had a gravel floor when we moved in. So I put in a plywood floor and cloud the walls with plywood. And over oh. a couple of last few years, I've been putting up shelves and things. Oh, wow. Um, and it, there's power coming, running from the side of the house where the um, the air conditioner is on, attached to the wall. There's a power outlet there. So Doesn't I've run sound dangerous there. at all. No. <laughs> uh, and I'm assuming that either my landlord is not a triple R listener <laughs> or if they are, that they would appreciate what I've done to their shed. And so, you know, there'd be um, uh, a, um, it'd be okay. So. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so if these are sort of design principles of the ordinary, you know, folk, not the rich people in, in mm. the big houses, are they actually nice? I mean, we're not just talking about like, you know, sitting on a milk milk crate instead of building a chair. Yeah, and so if you, it, it really ends up coming, uh, the, the designs end up looking like the sort of minimalist, almost 50s, you know, that mid-century look. Which is very uh, cool right now. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Whereas, I mean, his idea, if you look at, you go into a a news agent and you pick up a woodworking magazine, you'll see it and there's like the, you know, 50 plus gentleman in comfortable jeans and Jerry Seinfeld sneakers (laughs) and he'll be standing next to something that he's created, which has clearly been made with a lot of skill, but possibly not a lot of aesthetic value or understanding. Style, Style, yeah. Yeah. And so that over-the-top designy sort of stuff and, you know, sort of like lots of scrolls and he, he kind of eschews all of that and says, no, let's just build what's needed. And it takes it back to real, you know, essential design principles, which are, you know, form follows function. And so you end up with these quite, I mean, I find them, you know, quite aesthetically pleasing um, pieces. Um, he does sort of bring in a bit of his own particular style into that again. Hence, he has a bookshelf made out of a coffin standing on his wall. But if there's, uh, you know, if the, the kind of idea behind this is build what you can build and build what you need. And through that, you can develop the skills to then build in the sort of the, you know, whatever other design features you might need. So, yeah, you do need a few skills uh, to, to create right. the project. Like I said before, I made a pencil box in high school. Yeah. I, reckon, <laughs> I reckon I'm on my way. <laughs> And I think, with, I mean, with that sort of thing, he, he talks about the, the kind of tools that you would need. Um, yeah, and they're, the, they're, they're expensive because his idea is you buy the tools that are going to last and you buy, you know, or you make the tools yourself, which requires other tools and requires time and requires a shed. So all of these things are difficult. But, I mean, there's plenty of other options out there for this sort of thing. There's woodworking courses all over the place. Like I said, it's, like, it's a pretty booming kind of industry. It's really popular right now. I feel like making anything is popular again, like mm. sitting at home in your shed and, like, making a chair or planting a garden which is fairly normal but you know what I mean like that hands-on thing and I, maybe he's tapping into that yeah definitely and yeah. I think I mean that that's the nature of you know people's working lives where they might be doing a lot of work and they're not feeling that there's anything to show for it at the end of this gives an opportunity yeah. I mean, people are also a bit more aware of sustainability and you know wanting to do their bit for the mm. environment I guess yeah, yeah. this is true does he talk about that kind of stuff like where you should get your wood from and he does I mean he buys yeah. his wood quite often from home center which I think in the states is basically bunnies, bunnies. yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and he talks about that as well as like you know there's reality and there's you can 
and tried. So you can you can grow a tree in your backyard for 40 years and <laughs> wait for it to fall down and then use that timber or you can use what's kind of readily available and just do it with, you know, with, with consciousness rather yeah. than just... That's almost a Portlandia sketch. And, you know, photos from my shed are a little bit of a Portlandia sketch as well. So, you know, I talk about building things and then the end results don't necessarily live up to what, what they actually, uh, the intention might have been. I, I was going to ask you about that because, you know, on the, on the blurb there's a manifesto about taking up tools and making something that lasts one of the most subversive things you can do in this disposable society of ours. And mm. I can kind of see that. I mean, it's sort of William Morris kind of... Yeah, you is know, it one of the most sub- subversive things? I also think it does become a bit close to kind of hip, hipster, you know, Portlandia. Really you kind does. of think of people making craft beer with, yeah. you know, they've got long beards and they're dressing like the 1890s. Is, it, is, is it's that element... Brunswick the... East, mate. Oh, <laughs> and, and this is the thing. So the, you've got that old school sort of woodworker, which is the, the you know, the old guy with a beard, but yeah. his beard is sort of possibly even more manicured than the hipster beard. Yeah. And he's got the, the jeans and, and the, um, the, the white sneakers and that sort of new generation of woodworker who you know has much better fitting jeans and you know possibly a plaid shirt longer beard <laughs> um and 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 the but the output is kind of the same thing so you know it's still about sort of creating stuff that is um that is of use i don't know i mean i i, I find his philosophy a little bit garbled in here but i kind of put that aside it flows throughout the text as well and he does mm-hmm. a lot of sort of self-rumination on why he does these things and why he's made decisions on what to build and projects that haven't worked and arguments he's had with old woodworkers about how to bank the best hide clue and i sort of yeah Put that aside and just get stuck into the projects. And I think just for that, this is a really, um, you know, really useful instruction manual. Are there lots of photos? There's lots of photos. There's lots of images. There's lots of drawings and etchings from, um, you know, from ancient texts and carvings from, from uh, you know, <laughs> e- e- Egyptian tombs. Like he, he really wow. goes into all of that sort of stuff. But yeah, lots of photos which show um, you how how to, how to make. Yeah. So which um, which one are you going to make? I'm going to start with a chair. There's actually there's a three-legged chair in here, which I, and he says that it's trustworthy. I still don't trust it. So I, just, I like four legs on my chair. So add, go, add an extra, extra. Too much Anakin. <laughs> Too much Anakin. <laughs> and I like how he, he, he appreciates that, so he yeah. puts in a four-legged option for you. <laughs> but there's also a three-legged table, which does make sense because yeah. the three-legged table will be stable on any surface. Totally. And I wonder why there aren't three-legged tables these days. So. I'm going to try for the chair, the four-legged chair, the three-legged table. Well, Lachlan Carter, we'll get you to report back next time you come in. We want (laughs) an update on (laughs) it. In two years' time. (laughs) This book is The Anarchist Design Book by Chris Schwartz, published by Lost Art Press. Thanks so much for talking about it. No worries. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. The Honeybees is a new play previewing tonight at the Red Stitch Theatre Company in Chapel Street, St Kilda. It's written by Caleb Lewis, directed by Ella Coldwell. They're both joining us here in the studio. Welcome to Triple R, both of you. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. This is a play about a family-run apiary. I don't think I've ever heard of another play being set in an apiary. Uh, uh, is that a bee farm? A bee farm. Mm. Right, mm. thanks. <laughs> How did it come about? <laughs> Caleb, you better answer that one. Uh, I sometimes feel that Australia is on the edge of uh, world events, that sometimes it feels like we're kind of just geographically, like all the big important stuff's happening somewhere else. Sure. And um, so there's a... 
there's something happening called colony collapse disorder that's wiping out the uh, the entire world's bee population. They're all just disappearing. And there's various conflicting arguments and theories about why it's happening, but no one really knows why. Australia is the only country left in the world yet unaffected. And it's not because we've got particularly great practice. It's just we're just isolated. And so it's hard. whatever it's causing it hasn't reached here yet. So... It just seemed like um, there's this this issue of global consequence that's happening right now, and Australia is actually at the coalface of it. Um, so that was that was the the beginning of the exploration of it. Did either of you know anything very much about beekeeping or the bee industry before this play came together? Or did you have to do a crash course in all things bees? Well, it's there's certainly been a lot of research involved. I knew a little bit and I knew about colony collapse disorder, which was something that when I first read Caleb's draft of the play, I got excited about that it was play talking about, about this issue. But um, I've certainly done a lot more research, but he's the expert. <laughs> I've got to... I've done a few... <laughs> beekeeping courses and, you know, got out there in the in the ET suit, the big white suit, <laughs> out amongst the bees. And was, that pri- was that prior to this or because, in because the of research? It, it's, yeah. it's, one of the, it's one of the best things about being a writer that you get to ask a question and then go and research it and, yeah, so it's, it's great. I've read lots of articles about the colony collapse and um, kind of predictions that it is the beginning of the end of the world, essentially, that, like, the consequences of bee colony collapse are going to be huge and huge for humans. So is the play, does it kind of um, have these kind of great themes of, uh, I don't know, doom, or is it kind of more of a positive look on things? I, I think it's an it's an exploration of... I feel like we're at a point in history where... We've we followed this mantra of grow or die, grow or die, grow or die, and that's been hugely successful as a as a species, particularly in terms of economics. Like it's yeah. just a really good strategy until now. Yeah. And I think <laughs> we're just we're hitting a ceiling, and and I feel like our generation, it's all about recalibrating that strategy because grow or die doesn't work anymore. We're like we're getting we're getting too big and. So that's that's largely what it's about for me. So and in the and in like that's all kind of big thematic uh, mm. questions. But at the at its simplest, it's a story about this um, Australian honey farm that because of this colony collapse disorder that's wiping out bees everywhere else, there was a period of time just a few years ago where Australia was making a huge amount of money live exporting bees to everywhere else in the world to replace the vanishing stocks everywhere else. So it was like a gold rush for us. We were like, and and every man and his dog was um, shifting gears into live export to make money. But in that rush, you know, were we in danger of, uh, recreating the circumstances that led to this happening everywhere else. Mm. And um, as a director, how, how do you go about presenting a play that has such big and strong themes um, but also making it a, a, a piece of theatre that works on its own terms? It doesn't just come across as this kind of didactic yes, lesson about it. Yeah, that's <laughs> yes, right. Yes. Look after the bees. <laughs> well, look, that's also, that's the director's job and also the the playwright has done an extraordinary job in making the play very relatable in terms of character because it is actually also uh, a family drama and so the backdrop of colony collapse disorder and the apiary that the family lives on kind of is is one layer and then the layer that is quite exciting 
you know, moment to moment within the play is about the relationships and the histories and the secrets and the kind of dynamic between the family. So I think that what Caleb's done really well is it's it's an intelligent way to get our audiences to ask their own questions about what, what the play is saying and what the opportunities and options are in terms of that message. So that's one of the main challenges is to have a script that has many layers you know so you're talking about a message but you're doing it in a way that isn't didactic is kind of going this is one possibility and this is one way that that these characters have responded what does that mean what what could we consider Uh, sorry go no uh well i I was looking at your schedule i saw you were um not only is the play previewing tonight but you've got a series of q a's scheduled including a q a with rooftop honey Yes, they're going to come along and have a bit of a chat about what they do and about um, what the play's about, but from their perspective as well. We've also got a wonderful um, family apiary called um, the the local organic Victorian honeymakers, Alf and Anna, who are coming along, who we've had excursions with as well. So we've we've been able to reach out to that community, which has been really nice. Do bees feature in the play? Oh, that was my question. I have one question, mate. Oh, sorry. I didn't know. Yeah. Oh, Are there sorry. live bees in this oh. show? Oh, great question, <laughs> Jess. Oh, Thank you. There's, there's, no, um, there's no live bees or traces of peanuts or anything that no. might cause allergies, so we're, we're looking after our audience. Oh, is that the only um, reason why you haven't got bees in there for the public liability? Well, they do say don't work with children or animals. <laughs> It's actually one of the most beautiful things that, that Ella and the... Um, particularly the lighting designer have done, like the way that they've found to conjure... Because the bees have... They're quite magical in the play. There's a real magical element to them and and, and, uh, an element of mystery. And the way that they're conjured with lights and sound, it's, it's quite beautiful. Oh. We do leave a bit up to the imagination as well. So. Is that like um like in Jaws where you don't see Jaws until yeah. 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 yeah yeah and then and then you see the giant, the giant cardboard bee. bee. Yeah. <laughs> um, I should just ask you before we we let you go. There's been a lot of talk about arts funding cuts. Um, Red Stitch was was a company that was probably expecting to get um, funding in the latest rounds of Australia Counseling and and missed out on it. Um, what's the state of the company in the wake of that? So we did apply for for um, the organisational funding. We were unsuccessful, and uh, it is going to present a huge challenge mainly for the artists that work with the organisation because ultimately. Uh, as in any independent theatre, the artists are subsidising subsidising the art and our goal as a company is to continue to make exceptional, exciting work and develop new plays, but also to value the artists' work and increase artist wages. And we'd made some really massive steps forward in that area through private philanthropic income and um, through we're lucky enough to have Creative Victoria income. But we kind of had made these steps forward. So now having that funding cut means that we have to fill up that before we can put the money where it really needs to be, which is increasing the artist's wages more. Mm. So that's the main challenge. Well, I guess the best way people can support you is get along to see some <laughs> of these places. You can want to come and see the honeybees. It's running, well, the preview is on tonight and it's running until the 16th of July. Correct. And as I said, a, a bunch of Q&As, including with uh, Rooftop Honey on the 25th of June. That's right. So a pretty exciting collection. Thank you so much to Ella Caldwell and Caleb Lewis for coming in. Free Triple R.
were discussing off-air lies that, that children tell and the type of lies where they just kind of go with the flow with their imagination. Um, we were talking about it with um, Dr Jen yesterday as well. Yeah. We were talking about, like, little exaggerations that kids make and then that's kind of, yeah. And then it took off, so we thought we'd talk about it so other people could hear it. Um, and I've got... A, my nephew was so great at it. <laughs> um, like, he, at one stage... He, at one stage, he went through a phase of really loving karate. Uh, and I kind of... I went along with him on it. So quite often we'd be walking back from, from school, um, you know walking back home and as we'd, we'd walk along it's him and his and his older sister and uh like if there was a a, a sign post that had kind of been hit by a car and was leaning over or whatever i'd turn to him and go hey mate see that see that sign post there do you know why that's do you know why that's leaning over he goes no why and he goes because last night i came over and i karate chopped it and that's why it's <laughs> leaning and he would lose it and laugh and then and then he just went with it as well. He goes, oh, hey, Jordan, you see that tree there? See there's a branch falling down a little bit? See the branch falling down? Like, yeah. And he goes, do you know why? And I go, no. Nah. He goes, last night I came in and I karate chopped it. And so the whole the whole way home we just karate chopped everything. <laughs> like the, the, the French fry over the freeway. Oh, that's the, the best karate oh. chop. Yeah, yeah. So that used to be standing up straight, but then we karate chopped it. <laughs> and then I my, love it. Uh, but then it was so funny because he was like, yeah. And meanwhile, this, the older sister was like, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. <laughs> Just getting so angry that we would go, ah, go on, go with it. Um, but also he at one stage had convinced, like my sister was getting other parents from school asking where he was doing his karate lessons because he was just, he said, oh, yeah, I go to karate lessons and, you know, I've got a sensei. And <laughs> so you, do, you taught your nephew to lie, no, <laughs> that's what you're saying. No, did, I just did, encouraged his imagination. Did did he sort of know that it wasn't true or was he just sort of... No, yeah, he knew. He was in on the joke, yeah. Yeah, it was because like, like, he didn't karate chop any bread. But when he when he was sort of when he was t- talking about you know had a sense having a sense on that was he just like living in his imagination or did he kind of know he was oh, getting he, one over? I think people? he really wanted to go to karate lessons. So and it's a I bit of like had, imagination world and a bit of real world. Yeah, he had other friends that were doing it, and obviously he'd asked them a lot of questions. It was like, oh, this must be what it'll be like. Speaking <laughs> of kids, so my um, best mate, her littlest boy's about six. He's quite wonderful. He lives in a total fantasy world mm. where. He lives on another planet. He regularly tells her she's not his real mum. That he has a yeah, that he has a mum on his real planet, and she's just looking after him in the meantime. But it's unbelievable. Like he really lives in this world. The other day, he was at the, at the dinner table, and he's going. Um, and it wasn't like he just told this story. He just goes, "Oh, mum, today I was at school, and um, and and you know, we saw it. We saw we saw a boy get we saw a boy get hit by a car. And she's like, that's horrible. Like, and she's like that, you know, and and um, and he's like, yeah, you know, he got hit by a car at the front of the school, and and then she's like, you know, did the school call an ambulance? And she's like, yeah, school called an ambulance, and the ambulance came along, and he got in the back of the ambulance, and um, it, it was horrible. And she was she was horrified. She's like, I don't know why the school didn't call us. Mm. And she took him to school the next day. And as she took him to school, um, she went to walk into the classroom. She's like, I better ask the teacher. He pulls her down. And he's like, oh, mum, um, just so you know, I was absolutely the only person that saw <laughs> that saw that little boy get hit. No one else saw that happen. And she's like, oh, so there you go. Lies are the best. Um, someone else has called through. Do you want to see if they're calling for the office or if yes. they're calling for us? Let's office? find out. Hi, you're yeah, in Triple R. Not, not, not calling for the office. Yes. Oh, yes. 
What are you going to story back? We've got a creative liar. We've, we've got three sons, and the middle one is a complete dream boat. Off with the pixies, um, in the most beautiful way. And the other day we were driving uh, somewhere, and he said to me, Oh, Mum, um, I just want to tell you that you're a grandma now. <gasps> and I said, Oh, right, okay, how's that work out? And he said, He's got a daughter. Oh, no. Um, and... She's five years old and she's growing her teeth. I said, what do you mean she's oh growing her teeth? She said, well, she's a werewolf. Oh, oh no. so, Horrifying. A, yes, I'm a, I'm a grandmother and I've got a little granddaughter called Snowy the werewolf who's growing her teeth and she's five. It's so a mother's dream. You were a grandmother <laughs> before you thought it possible. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your call. Them. All right. No, no worries. Have fun. Take care, Bye. mate. Bye. Uh, someone else has gone through. Let's see. This is who this is for. Hi, you're on Triple R. Yeah, g'day. I've got a story about kids lying. Oh, yes. Right. Go go ahead. Uh, I was a young child at my first day at school and uh, after a couple of days of school, my mum asked, what's your teacher's name? And I could not remember her name, so I told her it was Mrs Couch. <laughs> my mum my was writing letters to Mrs Couch. This couch was writing letters back saying, I don't know who you're talking about. Oh, that's so cute. Was the, was the couch the first thing you saw when you were trying to think yeah. of the name? Yeah, I must have been in the lounge room. <laughs> this oh, is cushion. That hurts my heart. Oh, thank you very much for that. No worries. Have a good day, mate. Bye. Oh, I, I was thinking when the, the woman was telling the werewolf story, I did remember um, meeting someone who was telling me a kind of similar story, but... but it was like when kids are telling you something completely straightforward, but it has that awful spooky kind of thing to it. So this kid was yeah. talking about the woman who comes to visit me in the night. Oh, yeah, yeah. no, there's a ghost there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. But that's what I wonder, because what if there is? Mm. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah. Aliens came to me last night. What if they did? Yeah. Where do you draw the line? Yeah, no. And when kids start talking about death and things like that in the way that, you know, that they just do in this sort of yeah. really straight yeah, way. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That, you know, the woman told me that someone's going to die soon. Oh, <laughs> my God. Okay, yeah, <laughs> Jesus, what children are you hanging out with? Oh, I see dead people. Um, there's someone on the line as well. Hi, you're on Triple R. Good morning, how you going? Yeah, good, mate. How you going? Do you have a story about kids lying? Yeah, yeah I awesome. do, yeah. My son, when he was younger, he, he was pushing him around the pram in the shopping centre, and he used to yell out, help, help, I'm being kidnapped. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, that is horrible. <laughs> Did anything ever come of it? No, I like lots of strange looks. But that was about it. <laughs> no one came to the rescue. Oh, no. mate, thank you. That's excellent. <laughs> oh, man, that child. That's horrible. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Thanks for sharing the uh, lying yeah. children's stories. That was kind of a bit of fun. Yeah. Three triple R. Nigel Dick has directed over 300 music videos and more than 20 documentaries and feature films. This Saturday, Acme is screening his documentary, Berlin Calling, followed by a Q&A. Welcome to Triple R, Nigel Dick. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Berlin Calling is a documentary about an American woman, Castle Wasserman, tracing her father's story during the Holocaust without giving away too many spoilers. There's quite an amazing payoff at the end of the documentary. Now, you couldn't have known that when you first began. So how did you come across uh, Castle and what made you think that her story would be a good film? Well, I think this is the first 
a documentary about the Holocaust, and there are many, but it's the first one seen through the eyes of a Clash fan. <laughs> so uh, one doesn't want to make jokes about the Holocaust, but at the same time, it's a subject which you still need to talk about, and seeing it through the eyes of a, a perhaps a different set of lenses I thought would be an interesting take on it and I'm, I'm for my own sins a bit of a history buff and I found that I had similar emotions to the emotions that she had about her father's past because my parents uh, I'm from England originally and both my parents went through the blitz so I found that I had residual feelings about a war that I was never in I was no, not even born at that time and and she has very deep feelings about this period of history even though she was born sometime afterwards and I th thought it was an interesting uh, subject to, to go down you know road to go down the Holocaust now, to many people, seems so so unthinkable because it was so monstrous. But what jumps out um, at the viewer looking at your documentary is when Castle goes back to Germany and retraces her father's footsteps. The places she visits, they just seem so ordinary. Well, that, I mean, that's the thing is that we, we just think, how could this happen in our world? You know, here we are, we come to work every morning, we catch the bus, the tram, whatever. But it happened in a society just like this, a very sophisticated society. And there are people who believe it didn't happen. And yet in Bad Alsen, a small town in Germany, there are, I think, between 20 and 30 million documents saying what happened during the Holocaust. At the beginning of the film, she finds the document which details the train that took her father to the camp with the number of the train, the time it leaves the station. A train journey in 1943 is detailed in all accuracy. I wouldn't have the details of a train journey I took last week. <laughs> it's extraordinary. Uh, the title, as you said, mentioned, the title of the film reflects Castle's love of the Clash and Joe Strummer and the punk era. But again, one of the really poignant moments in the film for me was her father talking about how when he came to America, unlike his daughter, he didn't want to stand out. I mean, she had a mohawk and was making a big sort of statement about her identity, but he says um, he didn't want to stand out. He wanted to be just like everyone else because he had stood out in Germany and he'd suffered for it. And um, it's a very moving moment, isn't it? I, I think so. I mean, the thing is, that's all of us when we grow up, we feel we feel somehow special, but at the same time, we feel like just a, a you know a face in the crowd. And it's I, I think it's part of all of us as we grow up. We want to assert our identity, and obviously, this is what Castle does uh, did in her real life, and that's what the film is about. She was trying to stamp her identity on the world. You know, I'm a Clash fan. This is the way I want to look, and. For her father, this was a matter of survival. And we don't think about this when we climb on the bus in the morning, going to work, wearing that, you know, ripped T-shirt or whatever it is, is that that actually says us something about who you are and people will react as a result. I'm fascinated by um, you making this film because you make documentaries, but you also make music videos for mm. a living and quite amazing, huge, big-budget pop music videos. You've worked with the likes of Britney Spears and Oasis, just to name a few, Guns N' Roses. How, who, are, who are you when you're making a documentary and who are you when you're making a video clip with Britney Spears? Is it two different, totally two different creative minds? Well, you have, you're making a film, so, yeah. you, you know, you've got a, a beginning, a middle and an end. The thing was, when we made this documentary, I had no idea what the ending was and I'd never really made a proper documentary before, so I was learning on yeah, the job. Right. And, 
you are speaking to the entire crew right now. Oh, wow. So um, I had to learn how to record sound, you know. Uh, I had to learn a whole bunch of stuff, which even though I'd been on set for a number of decades, not just years, yeah. I was learning for the first time. So it was a bit like um, the professor becoming a film student uh, again. It wow. was it was very interesting. Do you now have a whole new appreciation for the crews that you've been working around for years? <laughs> I have a whole lot of appreciation for people who walk backwards with cameras. <laughs> <laughs> How many times did you fall over? Um, a couple of times, actually. A couple of times. But uh, I, everything fitted in a backpack. And uh, you, you find yourself making creative decisions for very practical reasons, even though her dad is in the film a lot. Her dad's brother, who also survived the Holocaust, is not interviewed because I only had one mic. Oh, wow. Oh, so right. you just have to make the decision this lovely man is not really going to be in the film because I just, I don't have the technology to take care of it. Mm. What, um, someone who's made so many um, music videos, what makes a good music video? Do, do you see it as an object in its own right or is it primarily a promotional tool? Or how do you balance those two things? What makes a great video is a great song. Yeah. Right. You know, uh, I mean, I've made some videos which I'm very proud of, which I think are really good. What's your favourite video yeah. that you've made? Oh, that's a long story. Um, well, I always say Band-Aid, the, uh, the Do They Know It's Christmas, which is some years old now, was a favourite quite simply because, A, I got to meet lots of my heroes and, secondly, I did something which was worthy and saved a few, helped save a few lives. I won't take personal responsibility, but, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a crazy world. You don't, you know, know what you're doing when you go in at the very beginning and you learn and it becomes a technique. And I've forgotten what the original question was. <laughs> Sorry, Jay. Oh, no, I think it was about whether you have a particular um, favourite. But I guess following on from that, what, how, how does the process of making video work? Do the artists come to you with an idea? Do you, do you just present it with a song and told, you know, present this in visual terms? It varies tremendously. Normally what happens is somebody sends you the song, this is the amount of money we want to spend and it needs to shoot on August the 1st in Nashville, Timbuktu, Adelaide, <laughs> wherever it may be. And you just close your eyes, you take your dart and you throw it into the void and maybe you'll hit the target. And sometimes you do. It's amazing how often you actually uh, pick an idea which is... Uh, pertinent to the artist but it's I, I, I see it as making a commercial to answer your earlier question I'm making a commercial to try and sell the song and the artist in the nicest possible way I don't want to be crass about it but if it's not promoting the artist then you shouldn't be making the video in my opinion mm. can i ask you a really particular question um you worked quite extensively with oasis um at the kind of the peak of their career that kind of what's the story morning glory era and there's been um this great kind of beast this footage that's come out recently of noel gallagher doing talking over the top of his videos and i think a couple of them you would have directed and he's mostly going oh I was drunk, I was bloody drunk, oh, I can't even remember what we were doing, why did we get helicopters? You know, it's really quite funny. Uh, can you remember that time working with them? Was it as... I remember it vividly, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you were drunk then. Were, were they drunk? What was it like? It um, would have been crazy. Actually, I, I don't remember Noel being drunk, but he's he's got a very dry commentary, you know, he says about one of the videos I did uh, on that piece, and yeah. I'll, I'll leave some of the words out, but um, <laughs> that was a complete waste of an afternoon. It was, you know, it was essentially his, his verbal. And I remember the last time I worked with them, I flew back to London and 
there they were. And I said, hey, Noel, how are you doing? And he said, older, richer. <laughs> and he turned around, turned, walked away. Wow. So he's, he's like that in real life. I mean, you, the, what you see is what you get. There's no artifice, which on some level is quite refreshing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You're a musician yourself. Do you have to like the music to make a good video for it? I've actually discovered the opposite is true. Every time I work for an artist that I just absolutely adore and want to work with, it's never quite as special as what making a video for some artist or song that perhaps I don't like too much. It's inter it's very interesting to me a, how that's happened. Maybe it's a, you know, you think outside the box more when you're not really when you know you're really passionate about something you love something you, you know it's right there in front of you whereas if something's a bit distant you get to see a bigger picture maybe and come up with something more creative and you try harder yeah because you don't want to fail mm. and uh so i've if i do work with somebody who i admire i have to actually sort of turn the wick down so i don't become all gushy and <laughs> oh man you're so cool <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, you can go into a small room and close the door and go, oh, my God, I was just, you know, you turn into a fan just like everybody else, but yeah. you actually just have to be professional. Cool. It's, it's part of what you do. I'm sure you guys have the same. I'm doing know, it right now, Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> when Dr. Love walks through the door, you all go wobbly, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> and, and just to finish off, I mean, your career would have taken you from the very sort of start of that MTV era when people were really just discovering what video clips were and, and could be. How much has it changed now that that sort of MTV era seems to be over? I think it's actually in some way gone full circle because when we first started, I was making videos before MTV even existed. There was very little money. Um, and it was a method, actually, when, when I, I used to work for this record label in London called Stiff Records, we used it as a base, as a method of getting our artists internationally. I remember one of my first videos, they said, we are, this record is coming out in Australia, we need a video for it, and that's 12,000 miles away, we can't afford to send him, but if you make a video, that that will do the job. The thing that is really different now is YouTube. That's really changed everything. So that, and it's wonderful if you're a small band, you can make a video for yourself. If you have an iPhone and a laptop, uh, you can go and make a video, put it up on YouTube, and tomorrow night people can be watching it in Japan or, you know, South America, which is amazing, which mm. wasn't available 30, 40 years ago. Mm. We've been talking to Nigel Dick. His video, his video, his documentary, mm. Berlin Calling, is screening Acme this Saturday, followed by a Q&A. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.